This is Jim Inkster, and you are listening to Friday Politics on WRKF and WWNO. And as always, we look forward to your participation. Your number is 877-217-5757, emails to talk at talklouisiana.org. Signature support for our program is from East Baton Rouge Parish, Mayor President Sharon Weston Broom, and our program originates from the Investar Tower in Baton Rouge. Later, we are slated to hear from Governor Jeff Landry if things go according to plan. As we know, the governor is immersed in a special session on crime, but he is planning to take some time out to talk with us and give us an update on where that is going. As we know, many other issues affect Louisiana, and there is probably no more existential issue than the coast. And Billy Nungesser, the lieutenant governor, is with us. And in his segment today, we're going to visit with him about something that he has studied and has a different uh, opinion than other state leaders have, including the former governor, John Bell Edwards. The Mid-Barataria Sediment Diversion Plan is about a $3 billion plan, and it is designed to restore the coast. Now, it's a complex thing that would involve reconnecting the Mississippi River to the Barataria Basin to restore wetlands and contribute to the broader restoration of its ecosystem. The governor is skeptical, and there is a lot of money on the table. And there was a contested meeting, and I'm using that word, uh, and that is an understatement, at the Water Institute this week. Governor Nungesser, Lieutenant Governor Nungesser, your thoughts about where we are and why you believe this is not as good as forecast. Yeah, let me first say, Jim, uh, you know, I, I used the word criminal a couple of times in the meeting, and I'm passionate about this, and I don't want to, I want to apologize because I don't want to insinuate anybody broke the law. But in, in the way I express being criminal is my thoughts that we're going to spend over $3.7 billion, and by the time it's, it's underway, it's going to be over $4 billion, on a project that will not lower storm surge one inch, and it's not a freshwater diversion. It's a polluted river diversion. And we could take that same money and build over 100 miles of berms, ridges, and islands that would lower storm surge to our coast. And berms that are certified by the Corps, what does that mean? That means it will figure in the flood protection. So it will actually lower our flood insurance along the coast in our lifetime. We don't have 50 years to do an experience for $3.7 billion that's going to wipe out our seafood industry. Their own environmental impact says irreversible damage to the seafood industry. How much damage? Well, we don't know because at 11 o'clock on a Friday night, our congressman got a waiver of the Marine Mammal Act, not to study the seafood impact or the wildlife impact. They got a waiver. Instead of studying it, they're going to monitor for five years after they spend $3 billion. Wouldn't you want to know the harm you're going to do up front? Well, if they didn't get the waiver, they probably couldn't build it, is what they said. So maybe we shouldn't. David in Atlanta, you're first up with Lieutenant Governor Billy Nungesser. Hello, David. David? Robin, I think he's there. He's just not hearing me, but uh, why don't we see if we can get him on the line and Governor uh, Landry, Billy Nungesser, is apparently uh, weighing options, uh, as he should. 
he inherited this and uh, he may decide to keep it as is or go a different way or tweak it. What are your thoughts about whether he may be open to uh, another option? Well, I believe the governor is open to doing what's best for Louisiana. And I hope uh, him and his team, after weighing what's positive about this, I can't see anything. Um, and, and, and a lot of the politicians say, well, we already spent $300 million. We'll have egg on our face if we stop it now. So that's not a good reason to spend another $2.7 billion or $3.5 billion, whatever it is. So hopefully uh, we can see the governor take a look at this and, and see what greater good we could do with this money uh, for all of the coast. And also weighing in that CPRA was created to work with local government to help restore their coast. Both parishes, St. Bernard and Plaquem, voted 100%. We don't want this thing, and yet they're ramming it down their throat. So hopefully the governor will take a look, and, and I know the governor wants to do the right thing, so hopefully we'll get a chance to redirect this money in a positive way. Okay, let's give David another shot. David, in Atlanta, you have the floor. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, Lieutenant Governor, I agree with you. The money is a waste to build that river diversion. But I think where I disagree with you is, you could build all the diversions, but sea level rise in the coming years will literally wash away that billion or billions of dollars spent. Now, this is where I disagree with you, I think, but please tell me your thoughts. Uh, sea level rise, human cause, climate change is undeniable. All right. Does David have a valid point? Governor Nungesser, I, I see that his line is uh, locked, Robin, so let's see if we can get him... Uh, where we can hear him there. We yeah. Go. Yeah. I, I, um, let me tell you that that's, that's, you're right. Sea rise is rising. They just came out with a new article this past week that by 2070, we will lose over 75% of our wetlands. That should immediately say, let's not build this diversion because it's going to have a negative impact. If we built land, ridges and islands, eight foot slanted down to the marsh that will lower storm surge we could buy another 50 years of 100-year protection for the city of New Orleans. But he's absolutely right. Sea rise is rising. The wall around New Orleans is sinking. Worse than Katrina. If we don't have a hurricane for 10 years, where are we going to get the billions to raise that wall to offset the sea rise to keep 100-year protection? But if we built land out there now and lowered storm surge, we could buy another 50 years of protection. The only way to fight that sea rise uh, and subsiding is to pump elevation and lower storm surge before it gets to our coast. Phil and Jefferson. Phil, good morning. You're on with Billy Nungesser. Good morning, uh, gentlemen. Yes, sir. Uh, science says that we're not going to be drilling our way out of climate change. We're not going to be dredging our way out of uh, sea level rise. We want to dredge the Mississippi River at Baton Rouge. All right. What about... The uh, what some believe is inevitable that we're going to wash away that there's only so much we can do. Well, you're right, but but, but the, the common sense solution right now is to pump that river set. And Jim, let me tell you something else. When I was parish president, I built a levee along the bottom of the river and kept the salt water at bay. The reason that salt water is reaching close to New Orleans is when when Mardi Gras Pass blew out the levee on the east bank of the river. We begged the Corps to restart, put that levee back in. They let it flow wildly. Now it's 1,000 feet wide, 80 feet deep. They believe as much as a third of the river is flowing through Mardi Gras Pass. 
When you don't have volume pushing that salt water at bay, it's traveling further upriver. It almost reached New Orleans this year. It would have been a catastrophe. If we build this diversion, New Orleans better get ready for salt water because you're taking more flow out the river, keeping that salt water at bay. Mardi Gras Pass, I believe, is the reason salt water reached Jefferson Parish and almost to New Orleans. And if we build this diversion, they better get ready because salt water will, will, will be as far. I believe that lack of the river flow will absolutely the reason that salt water can travel further upriver. Now, a listener in Baton Rouge, Holly, asks about uh, this conclusion we often have in Louisiana, or perception might be a better way to describe it, that when $3 billion is on the table, as it was in the Blue Cross uh, proposed merger or or takeover by Elevance, uh, we automatically think that somebody is going to take us for a ride. Is that a perception that is involved here with so much money at stake? uh, There's a concern that some people may be enriching themselves. Well, I always say follow the money. And, and I get in trouble for, for stating certain things that uh, uh, you never hear about. But, yes, if you can follow the money, the consultants, the people that have been hired to keep this thing moving forward, uh, think about it, Jim. When this thing, uh, in 2012, at a meeting in Plaquemines Parish when I was president, was estimated not to exceed $250 million. Now it's over $3 billion. They've already spent, they've already spent, $300 million, and they haven't started yet. Where did that money go? How many consultants? How many studies? How many uh, lobbyists to change the federal laws so they could build this thing, knowing it's going to wipe out the dolphins? They will be extinct within 50 years. It'll kill 50% in the first 10 years. That is a study done by the Marine Mammal Commission. That's not me saying it. That's St. Andrew Institute saying dolphins will be extinct in the Gulf. They're territorial. They're not leaving. And they're the smartest animal in the Gulf. When you kill the dolphin, everything below it will die. They're not leaving. They're territorial. We kill more dolphins when we open the spillway in 2019 than the BP oil spill. That polluted water just kills them. And it kills our seafood and our trout and our redfish will not be non-existent in the Barrettera Basin. What's the next step on this? Well, Hopefully, and, and I applaud the new head of CPRA. He's got some of his team looking at it, going to evaluate the pros and cons and make that presentation to the governor. And hopefully, uh, Wright will win out on this and we can take that $3 billion plus and start dredging the river. And every year, storm surge will go down, not up, and we can save our coast. Thank you, Lieutenant Governor Billy Nungesser. We're back with more after this. This is Jim Inkster, and you are listening to Friday Politics on WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO New Orleans, and your number is 877-217-5757. Emails to talk at talklouisiana.org. And we're joined by the 57th Governor of the great state of Louisiana, Jeffrey Martin Landry, the pride of Acadiana, who has called a few places in that great region home, and Broussard is the latest one. And good morning to you, Governor Landry, on your 47th day in office. Jim, I'm glad somebody's counting. I want to let you know I'm so disappointed. I didn't get to go in studio. In fact, I dressed up just for you today, and then they told me, <laughs> <laughs> then they told me I had to do this by phone. So 
I figured, look, we're going to do another one when Easter comes and I can get in one of my bright suits. Well, I, I look forward to that. That's a deal. I always enjoy talking to <laughs> to Governor Landry. And, and as you can uh, hear him through the phone lines, I think he's probably the funniest governor, uh, despite some uh, people who might think otherwise, since, since Edwin Edwards. And uh, you... Uh, were born in December of 1970, short before the, shortly before the rise of the Cajun Prince. I'm sure in some ways he had to rub off on you, even though your politics are somewhat different. They are, but you're right. I mean, you know, I got to uh, um, spend some time under Governor Edwards in his last term uh, when Craig Romero had, had gotten to the Senate, and I, and I, I worked for Craig, um, and certainly um, uh was able to catch the tail end of that. And, and of course, I'm a ferocious reader and, and read a lot about um, uh, both American and Louisiana history. In fact, I just finished um, an, this, this short book on Huey Long written by this fellow who's uh, over at the University of Virginia. It was given to me uh, by Jill Warren, who um, is, um, is a friend of mine from, from D.C., a friend of Sharon and ours. And um, great book. Maybe I'll get you a copy of it. Really, like it's not, would, it's not a long that. read, but it's it's extremely fascinating. Um, and um, and so no, I enjoy Louisiana history and I enjoy U.S. history. I think Louisiana history is better than U.S. history. It's a lot more colorful, right? Well, I I, I enjoyed your your uh, inaugural speech, and I remember Bill Clinton was the only governor who came from another state when Buddy Romer was inaugurated, and Romer, of course, had the brass to invite all 49 other governors, but Clinton showed, and and uh, and I remember Clinton just marveling at Romer's uh, professed love for his state, which was genuine. He said, it's the purtiest state in America. I love Louisiana. And you said if you had ha- how many lives to live, you would want to live them all in Louisiana, correct? Yeah, if I had thousands of lives to live again and again and again, I'd always want to live in Louisiana. I mean, it's true. I mean, I'm, of course, it's kind of hard to take that out of me. I mean, our, fam- our families have been here. Uh, both on my mom and dad's side since the since the mid 1700s. So you know, um, I mean, at at that point, the place has to grow on you, you know, it genetically. Does. No doubt, <laughs> it's in our it's in our blood. And in New Orleans, which is the crown jewel of our state, you have uh, obviously accented that city. Other governors have not, and you are different in that respect. But you are addressing crime in this special session, and much of it is directed at uh, New Orleans, which is still the bellwether for the rest of our state. You noted in your column, which uh, I read with interest in the Advocate and Picayune prior to the session, that one of every 14 black men in New Orleans will be murdered before he reaches the age of 35. Now, that's a sobering statistic, and tragically, I believe it to be true. What is the root cause of this, in your judgment? Well, look, there's there's, there's a lot of reasons uh, that crime has been running rampant, okay? Um, And certainly in New Orleans as well. You know, eight years ago, when I became the attorney general, uh, I was asked by a number of stakeholders to go to New Orleans and to assist the state police, because that's when crime had really started taking back a foothold inside the quarter. Uh, in the central business district, you know, and I realized then, of course, from my time as a sheriff deputy and police officer, um, and then in the military, as a military police officer, 
that that what had happened has been that we have dispatched the state police into the into those two areas uh, to root out or to ferret out or to basically what happens is push out crime. But then the crime is only pushed out. The criminals just go to the fringe part of it, which pushes them into neighborhoods um, where a lot of people don't have the means to be able to safeguard themselves as well and where the law enforcement may not be as robust as when you send a state police in. And, and this was eight years ago. And, 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 and I, since then, I've always said that if I had an opportunity, that we would work to secure the entire city. Uh, because I do. I, I believe that where goes New Orleans, where goes the state. A lot of people from the state of Louisiana um, and, and their disdain for the city is mostly in the fact that they recognize the beauty and the opportunity in New Orleans and the fact that you can just go to New Orleans instead of having to travel way far around the country and find some of the greatest opportunities and enjoy themselves in a vacation. But it irritates them that they go there and they watch their tax dollars or they can't go there anymore uh, when they know that their that money coming out of their pocket is going into that city and they're getting nothing for it. Now, if the city's safe and the city's robust and people can go in and out and tourism and entertainment is thriving, what well, in local citizens from around the state who go there feel like there's some worth. And, and, and it's hard time that we do that. I mean, listen, the city's been out of control for quite some time. And, and we're going to methodically work to make that city a safe city, uh, which I think then brings economic opportunity to the city, um, and, um, and hopefully restore it uh, to a great city. Today in the uh, newspaper of record, the uh, Picayune and Advocate, uh, stricter sentencing legislation advancing, measures would make Codes tougher than before 2017's justice reform took effect. Now, when your predecessor took office, he had some sweeping crime legislation that was uh, supported uh, by both Democrats and Republicans. But have you uh, taken pause with some of the outcomes? Do you think it's worked? I don't. Um, I mean, I really have to search. Uh, to think of what parts of what they did uh, have actually been meaningful. I, I think the, the biggest problem is the goal. When they set the goal, the goal was to reduce Louisiana's prison population. That means um, in layman's term, or like a country boy like me, that you want to let people out of jail. because It's the only way to reduce prison population. The goal in reforming the criminal justice system should never be about letting people out of jail. It should be about how you keep people from going to jail. I mean, jail is a place that you don't want to go. And if you're in jail, you did something that you shouldn't have. And so you shouldn't be just being let out. And, and I think that that was part of the problem. Now you say, well, how do you keep people from going to jail? Well, one stiffer penalties certainly enhance that. I know, I know my mother, look, I, I used to do this, Jim. I used to love to do this. I'd speak in front of big crowds and I'd ask all the women in the, in the crowd to raise their hand if, if any of them had raised children. And they'd raise their hand. And I said, well, look, don't you have rules in your house? And don't you have a method um, of enforcing those rules? And certainly if you have a husband in the house, you got rules for him too. You may have a different way of enforcing those rules. <laughs> but 
either way, the level of the, the severity of the rule that you set back and the severity of the way that you break it determines the level of, of, of enforcing or punishing you for breaking that particular rule. Um, we saw, you know, back in the 70s, uh, during the second opioid epidemic in the country, uh, Louisiana had a huge heroin problem. They went in and they said, if you are caught with an ounce of heroin, you're going to jail for life. And within a decade, I remember as a sheriff's deputy in the late 80s, I never, ever saw heroin again. Yeah, we relaxed those rules and all of a sudden we got another problem. Now, there's a little more complexities to that, um, which we could talk about on another day. But first of all, you have to lay the rule of law down and it is not optional. And then you have to work to ensure that the sentence fits the crime. And that as people come out of the system, they're more adapt to being able to come back into society. We're hearing the voice of the 57th governor, Jeffrey Martin Landry. The leader of Louisiana will return for another segment after this time out on Talk Louisiana. This is Jim Inkster, and you are listening to Talk Louisiana, and we have one more segment with the governor of Louisiana, who hopefully will be a regular, Jeffrey Martin Landry, former congressman, uh, who served eight years as attorney general before winning the election on October 14th without a runoff. He got almost 52% of the votes in a field that included 15 other candidates. Jeffrey Martin Landry is in the middle of a crime session that he decided to uh, embark upon right after another session that uh, created a black majority congressional district and also uh, moved Louisiana to close primaries for federal elections and for a few other elections, including the Supreme Court and the Public Service Commission. Before we go back to crime, uh, some would say it's kind of bold for a Republican governor to be out in front on a congressional map that could be detrimental to at least one Republican in the delegation. Your thoughts, Governor Landry? Well, Jim, uh, first of all, you know, and this is kind of part and parcel to, to what we talked about on crime and the rule of law. I mean, look, we have to respect the decisions that the courts have made. Um, as Attorney General, uh, we defended um the congressional maps that, that the legislature had put forth. And we did so all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, I would add. Uh, and when those maps came down from the United States Supreme Court and when the Fifth Circuit um, basically um, paved the way for, um, for the federal judge here in Baton Rouge to, to, to redraw uh, the congressional districts, but, but gave the legislature uh, a window of opportunity to do its job, I, I mean, we, we really had no choice. And, and, and so, you know, when, when you face with no choice and I mean, you got to make a big decision. You, sometimes the law um, doesn't give you the results that you like uh, and you don't have the ability to just ignore it. And so we went out there and, I, and, and, and put the legislature through a redistricting session. Uh, it was not easy. Redistricting is definitely, it's never easy. It is, it is probably one of the most difficult things that legislators do. Uh, but I, I, look, I will tell you, I was, I was proud of the Republicans in Louisiana and all of Louisiana, irrespective of your party affiliation, should be proud of them. They did not do uh, what the Republicans in Alabama did. They did not thumb their nose at the federal courts, only for the federal courts to come in and smack them. Um, we worked together and we found a way uh, to abide by the courts 
um, uh, you know, edicts. And then and we got a map passed. And so, look, we were, you, think about this, Jim. We were able to do what the Democrats never had been able to do. You know? No, um, I, I, um, I've noted and, and, that I don't think a Democratic governor could have done this. Uh, you, that's why it's uh, a bit unusual that you, you led the charge. But you're saying that you did it because you had to or because it was the right thing or both? Well, I think when the courts tell you something, that has to be the right thing to do. I mean, just because you disagree with it um, doesn't make it not right. And and so when the courts came out um, and kind of basically showed us what was going to happen, uh, you know, I explained that to the to the Republicans on both the House and the Senate side, and um, and we went out there and tried to um, to draw maps that that truly reflected the state of Louisiana and abiding by the courts and and hey. You know, I'm satisfied. I, look, I, I want to dispose of all the federal litigation. You know I me, mean, Jim. I hate to be un- underneath the federal courts. Um, uh, it costs. It's extremely costly. Uh, it, it, it costs us time, not only money, but time. Uh, time that we could better be served, working to keep our state safe, reforming our educational system, creating more job opportunities. And so, uh, look, I was glad to move that um, off the table. Do you think it'll withstand a court challenge? I do. I do. I, I mean, I mean, look, there's one or two things that are going to happen. Either it will withstand the court challenge, and 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 we now have some good, clear rules um, uh, to to draw by, uh, or the Supreme Court will once and for all give us more clarity on how states are supposed to draw congressional districts. Um, and so it's going to be one or the other. It's, it's, it, 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 this is one of the cases, and these are one of the maps, that is going to bring some finality uh, to a, a vexing question that has, that has evaded legislatures around the country. Um, and so I do. I think, it'll, I think it'll withstand the scrutiny. A few things about the special crime session. Uh, expansion of concealed carry to any law-abiding citizen having that right. You're in favor of that, and it looks like the inertia is headed in that direction. And also uh, starting to execute people. We haven't put a prisoner to death in Louisiana in more than 14 years. So why are you on the side of law and order uh, on those measures, which of course... Uh, as you know, have a few people uh, who are naysayers. Um, well, I mean, I, I don't, I don't see any correlation between law and order and not allowing the Second Amendment uh, to be exercised. I mean, look, twenty-seven other states have these laws. In fact, in fact, I was looking at a map. I was trying to find it when you were asking me the question. Um, if I'm not mistaken, every state around us. Um, as uh, a, a constitutional carry, everyone, actually, every yes, right, every one of them has had it around us: Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee. All states that seem to have better crime statistics than us, all states that have better economic metrics than us, and so. This argument that constitutional carry some kind of way doesn't in any way um, help 
or that it, it's gonna it's gonna only enhance some of the problems we have in Louisiana. I think I, I mean I can I can only as a good lawyer I can only give you Exhibit A, or I can or we can go to B, C, and D. And we can name <laughs> each state individually in the exhibit. Um, so you know again I think it's I think it's a lot of nothing, uh, and 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 I, it also irritates me because criminals carry guns no matter what. And so why would why do law abiding why should law abiding citizens need the government's permission uh, to exercise their right? They're, they're shown to be the most law abiding citizens out there. And I asked a friend of mine who had been in law enforcement all his life if he had ever I said this in my speech if he had ever um, uh, gone after someone or, or investigated a homicide under which he ended up finding the perpetrator to have a concealed carry permit. He said never. So. I rest my case. All right. A listener asks, uh, should we have guns uh, available uh, at the Capitol right now? Of course, if you're a citizen, you're, you're checked. Uh, is that a bridge too far? I mean, look, I mean, I mean, that's a question for the legislature and the security of the Capitol. I mean, I mean, we have gun free zones. Uh, you can't carry a gun in a bar. You can't have a gun on a parade route in Louisiana. Um, again, this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that you you can just carry your gun wherever you want, okay? There are places under which uh, the legislature, um, through public opinion and persuasion, have determined that you shouldn't have a gun at, um, and, and, and they pass legislation as such. Um, and I, I don't have a problem with that. Okay. Uh, death penalty. Um you made a made a case that uh, I, I think that those who were on the side of uh, capital punishment, uh, uh, one that perhaps is the most persuasive argument that you view this as a pact between the courts and the government and the victims, families and friends who lost loved ones. Uh, tell us more. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people out there are trying to confuse the issues. What's being debated at the legislature is not the death penalty. Okay. If they want to debate the death penalty, they can somebody can file a bill to abolish it. They can go and 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 discuss that, and we can have a difference of opinion on on that. But that's not what is at question here. The question right now is fulfilling the law. Okay, the law is on the books. We don't get to pick and choose which laws we follow and don't follow. It's not how it's supposed to work. We got a bad law, we get to fix it. The legislature does that. And so we've had families, I mean, some of the most heinous crimes. And I mean, the, the path by which these families travel uh, and the pain and the time that they endure and the resolve that they take for their day of justice is something that the state should fulfill. And that, that, that's my position. Okay. Quickly, uh, we'll take a call or two, but you got to be concise. Ron and Rosedale, I think you've been waiting the longest. Ron, you're on. Good morning. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, so, uh, Governor Lander, you were talking about, you know, and essentially being tough on crime. And if you're in jail, you've done something that uh, was not following the law, and we don't get a chance to pick or choose whether we follow the law. So with all of that, how can you justify the support that Donald Trump has where he's got both misdemeanor and... All right. That's a national question. I'd rather not go there. This is not involved in the in the special session, but I appreciate your concerns, uh, Ron. Uh, let's go to Patricia in Baton Rouge. Patricia, good morning. 
Uh, good morning, Governor. Thanks for your work on improving crime uh, in Louisiana. Um, I know someone who was arrested. He was having a mental health crisis. He had uh, like his schizophrenia and had to get a lawyer. And I was wondering if you had plans to uh, improve uh, the ability to people to get treated for mental health. All right. What about mental health uh, treatment, Governor? Yeah, I'm going to tell you, Jim, you know, Patricia's question is great because it gives me an opportunity to highlight the other side uh, of of both our criminal justice reform and some of the things that are important to us. Mental health is a complete crisis, not only in the state, but in the country as well. Even on the campaign trail, we talked about it. Um, We are going to continue to look for ways to improve services for mental health. We certainly do not want those uh, with mental health problems. Uh, completely um, integrated into the prison population. Well, we do have to roll, Governor, but thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll be calling again and look forward to that visit around Eastern time in your bright, uh, probably blue suit. Thank you, sir, and we'll be back after this. This is Jim Inkster, and thank you for joining us for Talk Louisiana. And as noted, our signature support for this program comes from the office of Baton Rouge Mayor President Sharon Weston Broom. And it is Friday politics, and we heard from the lieutenant governor and the governor today. And hopefully Jeff Landry will be a frequent guest on this show, as I've stated in other places. And he has been with us many times before, but he is, in his own way, an eloquent communicator, much different than the preceding governor, John Bell Edwards. Landry is, I think, funnier. Uh, Edwards' John Bell was more earnest. And Louisiana, through the years, has had a succession of extremely bright governors. We've been criticized uh, nationally for any number of things, but nobody can say we don't elect smart people as governor of Louisiana. And we've had some people, I think, who are in the genius category, I think, that... uh, The previous governor was an exceptionally smart man, as was Buddy Romer, as was Edwin Edwards, as was Bobby Jindal, and I could go on and on. I don't know that we've had a dummy in the governor's office in my years of covering Louisiana politics, and I have talked to 11 different people who have held the office of governor of Louisiana. And in 22 minutes, which is what we had with Jeff Landry, we just cut the surface. We scratched the surface. We really had a lot of things to talk about. And uh, of course, a listener asked about former President Trump. And if uh, Jeff Landry appears on this show regularly, I'm sure we will address the presidential election, which is the marquee item this year in politics, 256 shopping days between now and election day. So we will talk with the governor about that. And I remember John Bell Edwards in one of his final Ask the Governor shows, noting that when he ran for re-election in 2019, that Donald Trump offered to clear the field for him if he would become a Republican. And Governor Edwards in that meeting in New Jersey at uh, the former president's estate there said, no, not going to do it. And the irony, too, was that that meeting was largely related to the criminal justice reforms that uh, John Bell Edwards got through the legislature that were supported by Donald Trump and uh, one of the lobbyists who lobbied mightily and successfully to make it happen, those criminal justice reforms, was none other than David Bruce Vitter, 
who had campaigned against them in 2015 when he and John Bell Edwards were on the same ballot. Again, your number is 877-217-5757, and we're joined in studio by a remarkable person, Betsy West. She will be at the LSU Law Center later today, and along with her husband, Orrin Jacoby, she is a principal of the New York-based production company Storyville Films, and she is previewing a film at the Law Center that uh, is of note. It's a documentary following the life of Pauli Murray, the late lawyer and activist who was instrumental in arguing the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment that outlawed discrimination based on sex. It was a prestigious, it won a prestigious Peabody Award in 2022. And good morning to you, Betsy. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks a lot, Jim. Good morning. And you've got a busy day ahead. Yeah, I do. So I know this is a symposium that starts uh, this afternoon, as in just a few hours from now. And the public is welcome if you'd like to go by the Paul M. A. Bear Law Center, the McKernan Auditorium. 1230, it all begins, does it not? It does. Uh, you know, I think many of your listeners may never have heard the name Polly Murray. But, uh, you know, in many ways, we live in a world that was shaped by Polly. Uh, as you said, she was an activist, a lawyer who really had a profound impact on American life and an extraordinary personal story. Uh, she died in 1985, but uh, her story has resonated with modern audiences. I'm really excited to be showing the film at the law school. And uh, it, it's a captivating documentary, as noted, winning a Peabody Award. That's that's high cotton, as they say. What was it that uh, made you go this route? This is a laborious project to do a, bocu- a documentary on anybody, but uh, somebody like this, uh, you had to talk to a whole lot of folks. The, the by, by the way, the name of it is My Name is Polly Murray. Right. Well, we had to talk to a lot of folks and we had to do a lot of research, but it really started because uh, I made the documentary RBG about Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And uh, Justice Ginsburg talked a lot about Polly Murray because she relied on a key article that Polly wrote in the mid-1960s to help frame the strategy for how to win equal rights for women. And, and uh, at the time, RBG, the lawyer, not the justice, uh, put Polly Murray's name on the first women's rights brief that she uh, argued before the Supreme Court. So she was a really important in the fight for women's rights. Now, we hear much about the First and Second Amendments, but rarely do we talk much about the 14th. But lately, I, I see the 14th cited for any number of questions. <laughs> yeah, And, uh, you know, it was Polly who understood that the 14th Amendment could apply to women, not just to African-Americans. And that was part of the argument to expand the Equal Protection Clause of the the 14th Amendment. Of course, um, Thurgood Marshall had argued the case Brown v. Board of Education and uh, had done that in the 50s. And then it was expanded in in, uh, uh, RBG's work in the 70s. We're hearing the voice of Betsy West, and Betsy West was a producer and executive at ABC News for some time, received 21 Emmy Awards and two DuPont Columbia Awards. Now, working at that level was, um, I'm sure, something that's a catalyst to this documentary, but you, I'm sure, have some thoughts about where uh, media have gone and where particularly television is right now. 
Yeah, I mean, the television world has changed tremendously, I think, and we no longer have the world of the three networks with the anchormen who were telling us uh, what to think. There's uh, cable news, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think uh, we've siloed more. People are listening to the news that they want to hear, and um, there's a real struggle now uh, for objective news. I think uh, certainly public radio and uh, has uh, been very important in holding to the standard of uh, the truth and reporting the truth. Uh, Listener, I think this is Tomas in New Orleans asks about the confusion, if it is confusion, about uh, NBC in particular, your rival network. Here we have NBC News doing largely the same kind of reporting that we've seen for generations, and yet we have MSNBC, which is uh, it takes a point, and usually a point left of center. Does does there create some confusion with both of them having the the NBC uh, letters behind their name? Uh, I don't. I think that viewers uh, are pretty sophisticated about that, and uh, you know, can I, I don't see that that's really a problem uh, to have both of them. Uh, MSNBC is pretty uh, clearly a more, uh, uh, let's say, left of center. Perspective, and yet I think NBC, MSNBC, does hold to the journalistic standards of NBC News and is not reporting things that aren't true. I remember uh, Tucker Carlson on Fox News had a front page story. In fact, it was a series of front page stories in the New York Times a few years ago about his power. And any given night, he would have like three million viewers. Well, um, I was looking the other day. Mike Douglas, the uh, Talk show host once had six million viewers every afternoon when he was syndicated across the country. Walter Cronkite and, and of course, Peter Jennings. Uh, but th- th- they would have 10, 20 million viewers or more. Uh, the fact that we're more dispersed in what we're uh, absorbing now, has that created some, di- some distinctions as far as where we get our news and why we're no longer perhaps as monolithic as we were as a people? Yeah, I think it's a real issue now that, um, you know, we've lost in some ways a, a sense of community. Perhaps it's been a good thing to have more options. And certainly, uh, you know, technology has played a huge role in that. Now uh, you can go many different places to get information. Uh, so it's had both a positive and a mm-hmm. negative impact. Well, Anna Pauline Murray. Anna Pauline Murray, Yes. American civil rights activist, born in 1910 and died in 1985. Did you know her? No, I did not know Polly Murray, and I don't think a lot of people knew who Polly Murray was. I mean, before she did this work on women's rights, she was a very early civil rights activist. Actually, she was really a groundbreaker. In 1939, she Mm -hmm. uh, was arrested for refusing to go to the back of a bus. That was like 15 years before Rosa Parks. Before Rosa Parks. Yeah. And uh, she contributed to Thurgood Marshall's thinking and arguments in Brown v. Board of Education. She also had a very interesting personal story. Uh, After her death, uh, it came to light that she really struggled with her gender identity. And uh, this is part of Polly's story that I think has resonated with people today. At age 16, she moved to New York City from yeah. Baltimore, Yeah, and uh, she was black and female, 
and as you say, had some uh, some questions about gender gender identity. That's a lot on the table for anybody at any time, but especially at that time. Yeah, I mean, she graduated from Hunter College right when the Depression ha- was was hitting, and really uh, had a tough life in the 30s. But uh, when she was turned down for admission to the University of North Carolina because of her race, this was in the late 30s, uh, she really kind of went on fire, went to Howard Law School, was at the top of her class, and then she won a scholarship to Harvard, but was unable to take that scholarship because she was a woman. Well, it's my name is Polly Murray. There will be a screening at 1250 today at the A. Bear Law Center LSU. Remarks by Director Betty West following. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.